Women, life, freedom. A rallying cry that is only growing stronger as protests in Iran enter their sixth week. Sparked by the death of 22-year-old Massa Gina Amini, who died in the custody of Iran's notorious morality police in September. Welcome to the What Matters Today podcast from the Geneva Graduate Institute. I'm Dan Graham, head of communications at the Institute. In this podcast series, we ask members of our faculty to comment on key global issues. Haircutting, hijab burning, mourning the loss of a friend, sister, daughter, and woman. These are the images of worldwide protests sparked after 22-year-old Masha Amini was detained for wearing an improper hijab in Tehran and fell into a coma and died. Yet in many of the Western countries where the rights of women are simultaneously being decried in Iran, Muslim women are accosted daily for their beliefs and how they dress, finding themselves as the subjects of extreme forms of racism and hate. To unfurl the reasons behind this dichotomy, Professor Julie Billot, who teaches anthropology and sociology at the Institute, joins us for this episode of What Matters Today. Professor Biu is a legal and political anthropologist who has held positions in the United Kingdom, France, and Germany prior to joining the Geneva Graduate Institute in 2019. She is the author of Kabul Carnival, Gender Politics in Post-War Afghanistan. She is also the co-founder and one of the editors of Allegro Lab, which you can find at allegrolaboratory.net. The hijab is at once a symbol of beliefs, rights, identity, and resistance. Is its nuanced versatility in the Muslim world lost on Western culture, hence making it a lightning rod for conflicting feelings surrounding it? So the meaning of the hijab varies according to the social and political context um, in which it is worn. It's a polysemic sign. So there is no universal and stable interpretation of that sign. So let's take different examples. Um, For example, in France, where it is banned in schools, and in many other European countries where laws regulate um, women's appearance, veiled Muslim women appearance um, in public spaces, it can be read as a symbol of resistance to the state. Right. Indeed, it's a, it's a courageous act to wear a hijab in such a hostile context. Here we can draw a comparison with the Afros worn by civil rights activists in the U.S. Uh, during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. It was about wearing a visible sign of difference, a means to reverse the stigma and say, black is beautiful. So in the case of veiled Muslim women in Europe, it can be also interpreted as a way to reverse the stigma and say, well, Islam is beautiful. I'm a proud Muslim woman. Right. In Iran... By contrast, where it is uh, compulsory for women to wear it, we see women removing their hijab. And through this gesture, they're resisting a state's policy. But women are not demonstrating against Islam per se. And we've seen women, you know, images of women also showing solidarity with veiled Muslim women. So they demonstrate against political Islam, and I think it's important to highlight that. They're demonstrating against the hijacking of their religion by the ultra-conservative political elite. So the gesture of removing the hijab has largely been interpreted in the West as a of Islam. 
when women's protests are primarily directed against the regime and its political instrumentalization of the veil. Though the Western view of the events that followed the death of Masa Amini often suffers from a lack of understanding of the local issues when it does not fall into a form of instrumentalization. So in my view, we need to develop a serious appreciation of differences among women in the world as products of different history, expressions of different circumstances, manifestation of differently structured desires. Instead of monolithic cultural explanations of the hijab, we need to redirect our attention to history and to global interconnections. In the case of Iran, from the beginning of the 1979 revolution, the Islamic regime made the veil sacred and the basis of its ideological discourse, linking its wearing to the blood of the martyrs. So the hijab was banned for time under the reign of Reza Shah Pahlavi because it was considered an anti-modernist attribute. But the massive return of the hijab to the streets was supposed to be the ostensible sign of the revolutionary victory. In 1979, Ayatollah Talirani, close to Romani, encouraged women to voluntarily wear the chador to show the world that Iran had just experienced a revolution and a profound change. So women's clothing signifies more than just social control or the state's monopoly of legitimate force. It is a symbol of an ideological shift in the nature of the state from the Pahlavi monarchy to the Islamic Republic. So since then, women have played a very important role in the message of the Islamic Republic, both inside and outside of Iran. It is about the identity of the country, which has undergone an anti-monarchic revolution and which has rid itself of Western imperial exploitation. And all this is being played out on women's bodies. So what we have to understand is that women were heavily involved in the revolution that created the republic. So they, they were promised a better status, they were promised an improved life, and this never happened. So, in fact, today, Iranian women talk about their right to choose. They sing slogans like, my body, my choice. This terminology occurs that of the United States, especially with the abortion debate. Yep. Yep, exactly. uh, but Iranian women are not parroting Western language in saying this. These are precisely the elements of the post-revolutionary republic that are sometimes missing in the explanation that we, we hear. The Islamic Republic has created a system of expectation and consequently citizens have demands to what the government as a republic. And this is what I think Iranian women are trying to express today in the streets. Right. Thank you for that. That's a very complete answer. And you made some uh, very interesting comments. You mentioned, obviously, the death of Masa Amini, which we'll talk about in the next question. You talked about the U.S., um, next question is a bit about the West. So in the West, in addition to widespread Islamophobia, there seems to be another side of that coin, a sense that Muslim women need saving. Why is that? So the instrumentalization of the veil is not new. Mm -hmm. since, since the 19th century, European colonial powers have used the symbol of the veil to justify their presence in various countries, such as Algeria or Egypt. 
the French and the British colonial powers used the rhetoric of liberating Muslim women from the chains of the veil and presented their own societies as ideal places for feminism to flourish. Today, this representation of the veiled and oppressed woman justifies discrimination against Muslim population in Western countries and fuels anti-immigrant sentiments in Europe and North America. We saw a similar rhetoric of women in need of saving post 9-11 mm-hmm. that was mobilized also to justify uh, the military intervention in Afghanistan, for example. So the white savior syndrome unfortunately does not spare progressive and feminist circle either, which may have been tempted to make themselves the privileged spokesperson of the Iranian cause by reducing it to their own struggles. We can mention the cases of the American feminist Kate Millett, who came to Iran soon after the revolution to teach Iranian women how to fight for their rights before being expelled from the country. Or the European delegation of the International Women's Rights Committee, shared by Simone de Beauvoir at the time, which had obtained a five-minute audience with Romani to discuss the hijab, and which only received the Ayatollah's silence, ultimately serving the regime's rhetoric, according to which those who oppose hijab are westernized elements disconnected from the rest of the Iranian society, who must therefore be um, eradicated or re-educated. So the feminist movement is now, I think, much more diverse, and many Western feminists are also concerned not to repeat the mistakes of their predecessors. So I think the new vocabulary of amplifying voices is much more useful than the idea of giving voice or saving or you know, speaking for Iranian feminists, which reinforces a paternalistic and hierarchical um, relationship, a form of colonial feminism, if you wish. Or expressions of solidarity, I think, must go through the recognition that these are translocal issues. In order to make these struggles readable, we are forced to find a common language to speak of patriarchy, for instance, or bodily autonomy. We are constantly translating, making analogies, but at the same time, we need to examine the local conditions of this autonomy. In order to understand what is happening in Iran, we have to unfold the conditions on the ground that lead to women's oppression. The idea of translocality is to start from the local and then look at the connections between multiple experiences and establish um, a wider form of solidarity. So if you like, I think we need to be very worried of this vocabulary of saving and find other ways of expressing our solidarity, which start from what is happening locally. Thanks for that. As I said, you mentioned the death of uh, Masha Amini, and I, I think it would be difficult not to make a parallel between her death and that of George Floyd, who both inadvertently became martyrs because of the climate and circumstances surrounding their deaths. Black Lives Matter also straddling the chasm between global support and racist backlash. The Occidental ideas of what liberties are granted and to whom rear their heads in the unrest. Is liberalism a dangerous weapon cloaked in the idea of freedom? Can it truly be a choice for all or is it another force-fed ideology? Well, I do not think that liberalism can be conceived as a general 
universal recipe for universal freedom simply because the injunction of individual autonomy triggers different modes of governing and therefore emancipates the individual in specific ways, in ways that are not deprived of constraints, in fact. So this is something that the political theorist Niklas Rose discusses in his book Powers of Freedom. And in the book, he offers an interesting analysis of advanced liberalism and of the centrality of the notion of freedom for engineering specific modes of governing, specific forms of right. power, if you like. Mm -hmm. He demonstrates that liberalism produces new lines of power through which the state is abrogated of the responsibility to address social needs or order, health or security, while autonomous individuals are made responsible for their own well-being. So in a way, liberal feminism follows similar assumption. A women's emancipation is seen as the result of, the of her breaking free from a community, a religion, a culture. So within the liberal frame of mind, modernity is coupled with secularism. Islam appears as a relic from the past, deemed to disappear with progress. And this teleological version of history describes Islam as an anachronism and denies Muslim actors' capacity to exercise agency and be part of modernity. Secular feminists have failed, I think, to see the historical possibility of finding common ground with Muslim women. But in their search for their own identity, Muslim women from all over the world experiment look for their own voice and create new ways of being female in public. What I find uh, interesting, the forms of experimentation they initiate are in many ways similar to those of earlier feminists. Um, they're creating alternative public spaces, they play with their public appearance, they test the limits of the permissible. And I think it's a shame that um, liberal, secular, universalist kind of feminists are not able to see that. But Muslims who, who um, express their Muslimness in the European public domain through their clothing or their lifestyle present an image of non-liberal agency that challenges some of the fundamental values of Western democracies. They are achieving a sense of self-worth by adhering to a certain life discipline that in addition to its assumed cultural dimension, is part of a broader social movement for self-reform and public recognition. So covered Muslim women, far from being either excluded from or victim of these dynamics, they participate through their bodily practices in the making of that culture while attempting in sometimes uh, ambivalent and complex contradictory ways to preserve a sense of faith and individual agency simultaneously. These non-liberal forms of cultural experimentation can also be seen as a means of self-empowerment for a minority in the making, in search of its recognition within Europe, if you like. So now let's take a very different case. Um, the modern Islamic modest dress that many educated women across the Muslim world have taken on since the mid-1970s. Now, they both publicly mark spity, and that can also, they can also be read as a sign of educated urban sophistication, a sort of modernity. 
In fact, it's uh, the American anthropologist Sabah Mahmoud who has written beautifully about that. And uh, she has brilliantly shown this new form, how this new form of dress is also perceived by many of the women who adopt it part of, um, of a bodily means to cultivate virtue, the outcome of their professed desire to be close to God, a means to inhabit the norm of bodhisattvas that gives them actually a sense of mastery of the norm and therefore a sense of self-empowerment. So it's a very interesting example to show that it's possible to achieve a sense of empowerment, not by rejecting norms, but actually by trying to embody them, by developing a mastery of a religious norm. Well, that's not an experience that, of course, me as a non-religious, Western, white woman uh, and feminist, I can understand. But, you know, I can also see how it, it is possible. So these different examples demonstrate the existence of different non-liberal, historically and culturally situated paths for women to achieve emancipation. So to conclude, really, what I want to say is first, we need to work against the reductive interpretation of veiling as the quintessential sign of women's unfreedom, even if we object to state imposition of this form, as in Iran or Afghanistan at the moment, um, and if we reject state's imposition of the veil, we should also reject state's forced um, removal of, of the veil of Muslim women in, in, uh, in the West. Uh, I think that's what should unite feminists, actually, or right to choose. And second, we must take care not to reduce the diverse situation and attitudes of millions of Muslim women to a single item of clothing. Perhaps it's time even to give up um, the Western obsession with the veil. So to quote Sabah Mahmoud again, uh, writing about the women in Egypt who are seeking to become pious Muslims. I want to quote her because I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. The desire for freedom and liberation is a historically situated desire whose motivational force cannot be assumed a priori, but needs to be reconsidered in light of other desires, aspirations and capacities that inhere in a culturally and historically located subject. So in other ways, I think we need to start from the position to start understanding women's choices from their historically and culturally situated position. Um, and that's the best way to stand in solidarity with women globally, uh, in my view. So you talked about solidarity. Uh, you know, there's protests happening right now globally, which is great. We're seeing people come together in the streets to support what's happening in the countries we mentioned. Where do you think this is going to lead to a greater understanding? Will, will there be less um, issues about the veil, as you mentioned, from the West? Will there be less of this, um, you know, negativity towards the veil? Or will things just kind of calm down and go back to the way they were, you think? So it's difficult to, to speak, you know, at the global level. For instance, I was a bit disappointed and at the same time not very much surprised by the way, for instance, uh, the French actresses manifested their support by cutting their hair and this video went viral. Yeah. And I was so upset with it because I think they didn't understand 
what these women are trying to achieve there in Iran. And it's completely different from, it's not again Islam, right? Their protest is against political Islam. So I think they misunderstood. But at the same time, I saw um, Ocasio-Cortez uh, in, uh, in the US trying to draw comparison with the recent debate around abortion in the US. Right. And she was saying, well, what women are protesting against in Iran is quite similar to what we feminists in the US are protesting against. We're protesting against the state control of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been quite criticized for saying that. Mm-hmm. And I felt like actually she was uh, misunderstood, but I feel that, you know, the younger generation of women who have also this experience of migration or a kind of migration heritage to right. say, they understand better. So if we want to stand in solidarity, we need to amplify, I think, these voices who are able to make these kinds of connections. Great. Thank you so much, Julie. This is great. Thank you for being part of this episode of What Matters Today. My pleasure. That was Professor Julie Billot discussing the situation in Iran. This podcast series is produced by the Geneva Graduate Institute Communications team. For more information about the Institute, please visit our website at graduateinstitute.ch. I'm Dan Graham. Thanks for listening.